about the Logos and the different ways that uh, this concept had um, manifested itself uh, in uh, the, the Roman, the Greco-Roman slash Jewish worlds uh, uh, even well before the time of Christ. Uh, I mentioned Plato um, last week. He was some 400 years before Christ uh, he he uh, he taught Aristotle, who taught Alexander the Great. So this is just a long time, even before uh, the time of Christ, that this that these ideas were coming up. Uh, and I mentioned uh, at the end uh, a man named Philo of Alexandria, who uh, kind of brought together all these different uh, avenues of talk about uh, the Logos. Um, Philo was a Hellenized Jew, uh, and he was a scholar and philosopher. Uh, He is known as Philo of Alexandria, presumably because he spent his time in Alexandria, which is famous, world famous, for their library, uh, which unfortunately burned down three times. (laughs) So there was a lot lost in each of those fires. But um, it was the center of the world's learning. Uh, you know, we get in history, we get certain cities that seem to be the center of everything that's happening. You know, like Vienna in uh, in uh, the music world in the 18th and 19th centuries, and uh, so uh, uh, he was from Alexandria, where he had all of this material for his study, and. Uh, he uh, uh, worked to harmonize uh, uh, Greek and Jewish thought. Um, he was a contemporary of Christ. Uh, I believe he was is thought to have been born uh, around 20 BC and lived until about 50 AD. Um, but as far as I know, there's no record of him ever having heard of Christ. If he was in Egypt that entire time, it was kind of on the periphery of the gospel. Uh, so he might have heard about Christ. Uh, we don't know. Uh, there's there's nothing to indicate that he was ever a believer. Uh, nothing in the written record. And we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, so he uh, uh, pulled together these uh, other ideas that I mentioned uh, last week. Uh, the archetypal idea... Uh, or this, in the Stoic school of thought, the universal reason. Uh, in Jewish thought, the Mimra. Uh, and then in the Apocrypha, uh, I mentioned the wisdom of Solomon last, uh, last week. It, it's also a very late writing. It's dated from 30 B.C. to 10 B.C. So right, wow. right before the Incarnation. Uh, so he... he he tried to bring together all these things into kind of a singular idea of the logos. Um, 
Now, he was far, according to his writings, he was far from being a Christian and went so far as to consider all matter to be evil. Okay, which this is kind of a foundational idea of Gnosticism and eventually led to Docetism, which, interestingly enough, John addresses in his first letter. Uh, and we'll actually read that here in a little bit. Well, this is what we're discussing, okay. what this Logos means. Um, uh, and I'll get into uh, a long, I'll read you a long passage about what Philo thought that this logos meant. Because I think what's in my mind, and I'm sorry, this man who's a great philosopher from way back, who evidently was not a believer, but yet somehow educated and pointing to logos, you know, that sort of contrasting in my mind a little bit. Mm-hmm. So maybe it'll come out clearer. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get into more detail here in a minute. I have a question real quick. How, how you know, part of John, John chapter 1, uh, how does it read in the Greek, you know, in the beginning with the logos? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. They, they use the word so logos. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is yeah, the, the Greek logos, word. Logos of God and logos of yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. So man, if he finally needed to get a hold of that, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Could have helped him. Of course, he was long dead when, when John wrote his gospel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I mean, it's. I'm sure these ideas were still being yeah. bantered about, you know, uh, ever since, uh, you know, the work of the cross. Okay. Um, now, Philo's landing place about the logos was that he was the eldest angel, uh, not the Messiah or even the Memra, you know, which is that Jewish uh, equivalent term. He saw the creation as being formed as opposed to created by the Logos as an intervening agent so that God would not sully his hands. Sully his hands with the material. Was he a one God man? Uh, I would guess. I mean, he, he was a Hellenized Jew. So, I mean, he would not have adapted no, was paganism. He was, he was a Jew. Yes. So when you say that God wouldn't get his hands dirty, so he was really a, a Gnostic, I mean. Yeah, I like, mean, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. Um, so, and this is interesting, this brought to my mind uh, Galatians three nineteen, in which uh, Paul says that God delivered the law to Moses through angels. So there's, there is something about that in Jewish history that which Philo may have understood and uh, and this may have been you know why he you know came to that point okay now before we go along we go uh, deeper into Philo I have to introduce another character <laughs> his name is Alfred Edersheim and he is a messianic Jew or was a messianic Jew of the late uh, 19th century and he, he uh, wrote a book which is still kind of the go-to book on, on the subject 
It was called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And he gives all of the context. As a Jewish scholar, he gives all of the societal and historical context of Jesus' time on earth. And everything, pretty much everything I know about Philo is from this book. <laughs> and so Edersheim has a really nice summary. It's fairly long, but it's a nice summary of all the things that Philo put together about the Logos. And so I'm going to read this, and I'm going to stop at certain places, uh, what I think are key places, just in case there's discussion to be had. So prepare yourselves. So this is Edersheim. What, then, is the Logos of Philo? Not a concrete personality, and yet, from another point of view, not strictly impersonal, nor merely a property of the deity, but the shadow, as it were, which the light of God casts, and if himself light, only the manifested reflection of God, his spiritual, even as the world is his material, habitation. Okay, so what is one of the things that John says about Jesus um, in his prologue? And was light. He was the light of the world. The light, and the light of the world. Yeah. So this this light of God casts the shadow of the logos, you know. In but John says, "Oh, the logos is the light." So, any other thoughts about that? Uh, very interesting. <laughs> okay, we'll go on. Interesting. I was just learning this recently that you know you can do this. You have if you light a candle. Well, fire is just air. Yeah. It's just air that's so yeah. hot you, you can, can see, see the it. shadow of the candle. You can't see the shadow of the flame. Uh-huh. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, Something next sentence. About that. <laughs> <laughs> Moreover, the Logos is the image of God upon which man was made, or to use the Platonic term, the archetypal idea. So God made man in his, own in his own image. And that image is Christ. And whose image was on the coin? Caesar's. Caesar's, who was a man. So his image was modeled after Christ. <laughs> so uh, what a twisted path it is. But, but yeah, I mean, uh, again, Philo, not a believer, uh, applies this um, to the Logos. Uh, he doesn't know it, but he's talking about Christ. Uh, now, uh, also, we can say uh, about this archetypal idea, there is an idiom in, in Judaism, at least at the time, that if somebody was the very epitome of a thing, then he was the son of that thing. Uh, like Barnabas. His real name was Joseph. But they called him the son of encouragement because he was just so encouraging. So what did Jesus call himself? The son of man. man. He's a very epitome, the archetypal idea of man. And so we we were made in his image in all aspects. 
Okay, as regards the world, the Logos is its real being. He is also its archetype. Moreover, the instrument through whom God created all things. If the Logos separates between God and the world, it is rather as intermediary. He separates, but he also unites. Any thoughts? That's philosophical talk. <laughs> he separates and unites. Okay. It's like the sound of one hand yeah. left. <laughs> well, he has broken us and he will bind us together. Yeah. Right. And he, he came, I mean, obviously he came to unify his church as one body, but he also brought a sword. I came to the guy that also said, Father and the Son also says he purifies and he destroys. Yeah. yeah, and there's obviously a number of passages that we could uh, talk about as uh, uh, being being not the instrument, but being in the cooperation of the Godhead in creating all things. You know, that's that's there's a See, few places we can talk about there. Because if you do any study of trying to understand the film, what the film is trying to, what certain films are trying to say. One of the main words that come on that list is the archetype. Mm-hmm. That films are full of archetypes. Right. And so that once you recognize that this is an archetype, you can identify it, identify it as part of what the medium of the film revolves around. This character who is the archetype of God, the archetype of a saint, or whatever it Okay. Um. To continue, but chiefly does this hold true as regards the relation between God and man. The Logos announces and interprets to man the will and mind of God. He acts as mediator. He is the real high priest, and as such by his purity takes away the sins of man, and by his intercession procures for us the mercy of God. Uh, one of the things that Jesus says often within this gospel is that he is doing the will of the Father. So this, uh, this is a true statement. He announces and interprets to man the will and mind of God. And, of course, he is our high priest, the real high priest. And it is his, it is his purity, which is um, the propitiation of our sins. His purity overrules the sins of all mankind. It is such as its greatness. Yes, we'll we'll be getting into that. (laughs) Yes. Um, Hence, Philo designates him not only as the high priest, but as the paraclete. Really? Yes. Now, uh, John uses this word but he doesn't use it about the logos. Anybody know how he uses it? Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. It's it's the helper. Paraclete means helper or comforter. Uh, so again, you know, another uh, another uh, interesting choice of words for Philo. Uh, but John introduces that word uh, for the Holy Spirit in uh, chapter 14, verse 16, which we will someday get to. 
He is also the sun, S-U-N, whose rays enlighten man, the medium of divine revelation to the soul, the manna, or support of spiritual life. He who dwells in the soul. So yes, manna. Jesus, in this gospel, uses the manna as as a model of him as the bread of life. I am the bread that came down from heaven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the bread that I have, you eat and never die. Yeah. You had to, you couldn't save it for the next day. Uh, he who dwells in the soul. And so the Logos is, in the fullest sense, Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, King of Righteousness, the King of Salem, who brings righteousness and peace to the soul. How did Philo say that? Uh, this, well, yeah, this is still Edersheim's uh, summary okay. of Philo's wow. thoughts. Did, did Philo talk thoughts, about Melchizedek? Philo yeah. Wow. Exactly. Wow. Uh, so yeah king of righteousness king of Salem and he brings in Psalms 85 uh, steadfast love and faithfulness meet righteousness and peace kiss each other amazing uh, now he that he's referring to that or at least Edersheim is I'm, I'm throwing I'm throwing in the verse for you <laughs> so I don't want to I don't want to mislead you okay uh, but that's that's the idea of righteousness and peace together. Uh, righteous destroying and the uniting in a sense. Righteousness in a sense destroys. We can't live up to his peace. Right. I mean, it's God in His righteousness providing peace with Him, even as you know, sinful as we are, as unrighteous as we are. But and this is back to Edersheim. But the logos does not come into any soul that is dead in sin. Uh, yeah. Now, what did Jesus say? He came not to to seek the righteous, but sinners. So yeah, this is this is an area where Philo falls short. Uh, and and there is there is a number of ways that he his ideas about. The logos, as John uses the term, uh, falls short, and we'll get into that in a minute. But are there any closing thoughts about all that previous stuff? Yeah, I can see a lot of confused faces from back here, uh, <laughs> and I don't know if this will help or make it worse. But I think one thing to help us think through what the logos is, because it's so different than how we think today. Um, I think we would do well to remember that when we're talking about the persons of the Trinity, God, God the Father is not a person in the same way that God the Son is a person, right? They're both persons of the Trinity, but everything we know about God the Father comes through who? The Son. Son. God the Father, there's one of the hymns that we sing is immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light everlasting hid from our eyes. That's God the Father, right? We cannot know the Father apart from Christ. It's impossible, right? So God is, God, God the Father is not a being. God is beyond being, right? So any encounter with God 
as a being that we have in Scripture, in our experience, is always going to be Christ. Always the intermediary. The intermediary. So Philo here is talking about the intermediary. He's talking about something that is that is a person, but is also like the closest thing we can get to beyond mm-hmm. a person. What do you say, person and yet impersonal? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So this is the intermediary that we're talking about. We're talking about Christ. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it sounds philosophical, it's but but it's not. It is. I mean. This is the most real stuff we can talk about. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, I would never claim to say that I understand the the entire otherness of God the Father, which makes the incarnation far more mind-blowing. Yes. He had equal glory to the Father, and he laid it down. So, I think you brought this out before, but around this time, right before... Christ's birth, there was just seemed to be a lot of messianic expectation and, mm-hmm. and writing that was, yeah. you know, moving in that direction. And certainly, the popular thought was nothing at all like this. Yeah. I mean, the popular thought among Jews, including their officials, is that the Messiah is going to be like David. Mm-hmm. He's just going to be a guy who's a great military leader. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's right. So this kind of thought was way beyond what you know most people were even considering. So, you know, in Ephesians, when it talks about the fullness of time, in the fullness of time, God brought forth His Son. You know, so and, it, and it's like there was preparation going on for hundreds of years that brings you to this very specific point of time, exactly. you know, and place that are miraculous and you know, part of those the roads built by the Romans. You know, so travel was easy. You, know, you, could, you could get on a ship and go anywhere in the Mediterranean world without, without much hassle. Less hassle then than we have now trying to get into a foreign country. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, so there's, there's just, what, there's, there's, if, you, if you start studying that fullness of time, it's like, this was happening, this was happening, that was happening. Mm-hmm. There, was a, there, was a, there were tons of stories about death and resurrection. That's why people say, well, what if Jesus was born now, you know, when he used TV or something? He, he came in the fullness of time. You know, he, he, wouldn't, he couldn't come at this particular, I mean, he can come any time he wants, but it's not, it's not going to be the same. It's not the incarnation of God. That happened at a moment in time that is fixed, mm-hmm. and it's very significant. Yeah, well, and we and we studied this on Wednesday nights when we were going through the calendar of feasts. His his life was uh, began with the end point in mind where the three feasts lined up one after another: Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and that didn't happen every year. Your chances were one in seven. So, I mean, that was part of the appointed time. Did you have something, Jim?
cultures so much higher than ours, we can't even begin to, to touch that. But we can relate with the man, the mediator, which God's given us. Uh, but these precious truths are placed to us by the work of the Holy Spirit, which is including the Trinity. Without the Trinity, we receive nothing. My uh, more contrast here that I mentioned earlier, through men who are great philosophers that I've not studied like you, so I don't have that education. It's a, a mystery that they can dig up things that are true, even from Scripture, mm-hmm. yet be lost maybe where, like Josephus, this one that I know of, but um, how without the gift of God, they cannot believe the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I guess what my question is, is God using great intellect to show that there's no salvation in it? He uses to show us his yeah. with understanding of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, I mean, he uses anything he wants to. Um, You know, uh, Paul says that you know uh, the Gentiles going back into history have no excuse; they know of God's existence through His creation. And uh, I mean, these philosophers are getting that close, you know. But but still, it's not a matter of faith; it's a matter of thinking with them. But they're getting there. Because God is testifying to them. Now I brought this up before, but uh, the uh, you know everybody knows the Sistine Chapel ceiling, you know, and, and that thing in the middle with the two fingers touching. Around the edge are little I don't know what you call them, but little like portrait lunettes. shaped lunettes, 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 and uh, there are ten of them, I believe. And Michelangelo had to figure out what to put in there. So what he did was, that, I know what I'll do: apostles, or um, I'm probably, sorry, prophets, and uh, in, in some of them, and oracles in other others. So he's got Jewish prophet, Greek oracle, Jewish prophet, Greek oracle, you know, and all the way around the building. And this is his way of saying, you know, God is obviously speaking very boldly through the Jews, but he was also speaking to the Gentiles during that whole period. Uh, and, and like David says, I mean, there was all sorts of motifs about the God who died uh, in uh, death and resurrection. And this is this is God talking to the Gentiles. They're aware of this stuff, but but there is that matter of you know the gift of belief, which even only a few Jews uh, apparently uh, had at any given time. Also, the matter of actual historical fulfillment of all of that. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was a spiritual reality already, but it still required a physical demonstration, uh, and that was you know at the fullness of time. Plus, you know, philosophy, art, all the other things. If, if they're one of their main purposes is the pursuit of truth, trying to find out what is true, yeah, and dealing with it, then you've got to you've got to expect that. You know, where does where does the uh, where does the journey to try to find yeah. out what is true end? Yeah. So, and in in my mind, uh, one of the main, if not the main, uh, keys to that uh, or instigation 
instigatory things, <laughs> if that's a word, to that is the problem of suffering. You know, why is this happening? Uh, is there any animal in the world that, besides man who asks the question of why? But it's intrinsic to us. Why is this happening? And why do we die? And, you know, the, uh, the answer is found in Judeo, in the Judeo-Christian story. All right, well, let's, let's go ahead and move on. Um, so we've got all these ideas about the Logos swirling around. We don't have to understand everything Philo said. We don't have to believe anything that anybody has said about it. <laughs> but this is what, you know, what is swirling around in John's world. Uh, and it was well established within the Jewish uh, uh, world of thought. So John took that idea and proposed in his, do- in his prologue, you know, this logos that you've been talking about. Well, this logos is God. And this is in verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, the logos, and the logos was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or overcome it. So the Logos is God, but that isn't all, because the Logos is also Messiah, and this is in 14 and 15, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Uh, So uh, this is all messianic talk uh, about the one who, the word that becomes the logos, who becomes flesh, um, and uh, he is full of grace and truth. And, but that's not all. Not only is the Logos God, not only is the Logos Messiah, but the Logos is Jesus of Nazareth. And this is in 16 and 18. And of his, of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's a heck of a statement. No pulling bunches here. That's what really disturbs me. People say, well, you know, there's nothing in the Bible, in the New Testament, that really says that Jesus is God. You know, right. yeah. <laughs> Are you blind? So, John is, is so taken with this idea that later on in his first. Uh, First letter, he opens by with uh, with the phrase "the logos of life," that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, logos of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So he doubles down 
on his letter, not only is Christ Logos, he is the Logos of life. And uh, you, you may have caught this, or you probably already knew it. This is, this is also how he handles docetism, uh, which we, we have seen him with our eyes, and we looked upon and have touched him with our hands. So that, that uh, is a declaration of how material uh, Jesus was. And John later goes on to say that if, if you deny that he has come in the flesh, then you know you are lost. We may think to no longer say that all matter, all matter is evil, because here is at least one extreme example of matter. That yeah, yes, <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, it, you, we have we have corrupted matter in the fall, but Jesus Jesus submitted himself to everything of the creation except for the fall and he was untouched by the fall so his matter was utterly pure all right so it makes it so much more uplifting just what what you've just read Mm -hmm. elevates the prologue of John to a whole new Mm level Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an astounding piece of work, and we're, it's so great that we're going to do it again next time. <laughs> <laughs> Can't get enough of it. No. But I, I will finish up this week uh, uh, with um, the profundity of all this. You know, uh, the Logos is God, he is Messiah, he is Jesus of Nazareth, whom you have crucified. <laughs> well, I'll just throw that in there. Uh, the, uh, it's the profundity of all this uh, can be expressed in the prophecy of Haggai, chapter 2, 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So this, this uh, uh, prophecy is cited in Hebrews twelve twenty six, And it is the first uh, advent. It speaks of the first advent. Uh, and the work of Christ. And it it is, at the incarnation, all the heavens and the earth shook. And it shook all the nations uh, to the point where Christ's body now exists in every nation on earth. And, And the glory of his house will be greater in that day because God was not there symbolically in a cloud. He was there materially in a body. Uh, it's just incredible stuff. It's interesting because in one sense that prophecy is about the rebuilding of the temple. And that the second temple is going to be greater than the first. But in reality, physically, it was not. No, it was not. Not anything near the first temple. And yet, what makes the second temple so much more glorious than the first one? Jesus. Jesus walked on some of those stones. Came in and taught sitting at it. Yeah. Mm. And the courtyard stones are still there, right? That's what I think. Yeah. Uh, they're on top of the Wailing Wall. So, uh, yeah. 
where uh, Christ's feet trod. So again, we can invoke Psalm 85, verse 10 again, uh, where righteousness and peace kiss. Uh, the righteousness of God was in the temple as Jesus walked about it. Uh, but God declares that in this place I will give peace. So it is the it is this moment of standing on earth and touching heaven by the logos. This this time where all things were reconciled in His sacrificial death. Okay, here's what Augustine said, and this is I think this is a paraphrase. Christ moved heaven and earth when he was born of a virgin and moved the sea and dry land when he made his name known throughout the whole world. So, Augustine. Could you repeat that one more time? Christ moved heaven and earth when he was born of a virgin and moved the sea and dry land when he made his name known throughout the whole world. I think, I think that second clause means he he overcame all the barriers of the seas and the mountains, you know, and everything that separates people from each other. Uh, the topography, yeah. he overcame that. Spread of the gospel too yeah. throughout the world. Yeah. So, all of this begs the question, why then did the Logos come among us? So this is the key question. I actually mentioned this last week, which... I barely remember myself. I'm sure y'all don't remember that. But this, this is the key, key question that we'll be asking each new theme to elucidate upon. We will ask it, why did the Logos come upon us or come among us? And uh, hopefully the themes, each theme will answer that question, a little bit of that question. Now... Yes, <laughs> that's that's yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, now, John's most general answer. Anybody? Anybody? Uh, guess what the most general answer to why the logos came? <laughs> well, that's a good one. But yeah. Well, but to this purpose which is in John 20, verses 30 and 31. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So his most general theme is life. And everything points to that. Everything Jesus does points to that. Uh, again, in his first letter, he uses the phrase "logos of life." So, this will be this will be our, our umbrella. And uh, next week, Stephen Kennedy, and then we'll pick up again and I actually start reading the book. Why do you What do you think? What do you know? I actually, read the book.